So we've had a little bit of a period here between uh, <clears throat> 1 Samuel and um, our series on the Apostles' Creed. And so we're looking at um, a couple of different passages in which Jesus talks about finding. And this morning we're going to talk about <clears throat> these two parables um, in which Jesus talks about finding a hidden treasure and finding a pearl of great Price. So when we look at the parables, the first thing that I want you to notice about them is that they are concerning the kingdom of God. So they're telling us, Jesus says, about the kingdom. Verse 44 and verse 45, he says, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like, and then an explanation. <clears throat> when he says the kingdom of heaven he could easily have said the gospel is like or the grace of God is like. Because what he's talking about is he is talking about that thing which you and I would call salvation or we would call eternal life or we would call, you know, how there's a, a lot of different ways to talk about what it is that Jesus is trying to tell us about. He's telling us, telling us about this thing that you and I might call salvation. So uh, salvation is like a treasure hidden in a field. Or salvation is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Um, in all of these instances, he's telling us about the gospel or God's grace or the kingdom of God or what you and I would term salvation. That's what Jesus is interested in communicating um, to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and all of the people that had gathered around and were listening to him teach at that, po- at that point. And so that's the first thing to understand. What is it that Jesus is trying to communicate about? And you understand that there's, a, uh, <clears throat> there's some play here for Jesus because what he is essentially doing is he's veiling a heavenly truth or reality um, that's what parables did. He he spoke in parables almost as a way to thinly veil the truth that he was communicating so only those people who had ears would be able to hear. Think about that. A, a little bit strange, don't you think? Jesus trying to veil, Jesus not just speaking with great clarity, but actually putting into a, a, a format that would make it a little bit challenging for people to understand what it was that he was trying to say. When we think about Jesus, we typically think of, you know, <clears throat> he's there, he's preaching, come on, follow me. I want every single one of you to come and to follow me. And, and, uh, and yet here he is preaching, teaching, giving truth to them. And he's veiling it so only those who have ears to hear can hear it. That's the nature of the parable. The second thing that I want you to note about the parable, both of these parables, is when you first read them, when you first hear them, you think, oh, they're essentially the same thing. He, He just says there's something that was lost or hidden and now it's been found. And that's true. There are some similarities in these two parables, but there are a number of differences in them. 
let's look at some of those as we just kind of work to understand the parables, and then we'll talk about some of the uh, heavenly truths or the kingdom-oriented truths or the gospel truths that we can take away from them. So here are a couple of things. First, the two men described in the parables are nothing alike. In fact, they probably couldn't have been more different. So in the first parable, he says there was a man who found a treasure hidden in a field. If we just think about the generic nature of that, that statement, that person is contrasted against the second person. Because he tells us the second person is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So two men, the first one just described to us as a man. The second one is a merchant who happens to be a man. And they're obviously doing two different things. The first one is somehow finds himself in a field. Walking through a field, typically they would have made shortcuts that would have gone through fields. Perhaps he's working the field. Um, in which case he would have just been a day laborer of, of some sort or, or a, a farmer just uh, on subsistence sort of living, uh, you know, day-to-day sort of a thing. Um, but he's just described to us as a man. And so he's just a regular Joe, if you will. The second individual would have been extremely wealthy. We know this because pearls um, were... The uh, first, they're, they're known, referred to in literature as the world's oldest gem. Uh, if you go all the way back to 2300 B.C., there's records of pearls that are being given and traded in China. Um, they were extremely valuable. Uh, it's the ancient literature kind of um, has the story about Cleopatra, and she would she once crushed pearls and put them in the wine. Uh, that she was serving to Mark Antony so that he would understand just how lavish uh, her lifestyle was and his could be. Um, and so pearls kind of had this long history, and um, they would have been, the pearl merchant would have had first his own collection of pearls with which he would have been buying and selling and trading. And, um, and he is in the parable on the hunt for Fine pearls, not ordinary pearls, fine pearls. It's a description. Um, he's not just, he's not your lower shelf, bottom level dealer. He's looking for fine merchandise. And so that puts him in a whole another category. To begin with, as a pearl merchant, he would have been wealthy, but he's the kind of pearl merchant that deals in high-end pearls. And so he would have been extremely wealthy. So Jesus is telling us about two individuals. The first one is your regular Joe, a farmer perhaps, um, and not a Mississippi Delta farmer in 2018, okay? Uh, that farmer today, not, not so much representative of this guy. Uh, but a, a regular average Joe is the first guy The second guy is an extremely wealthy merchant. Those are the individuals that Jesus is initially telling us about. What about another uh, difference? Uh, In in the first parable, um, the man 
stumbles upon or comes upon a treasure in a field. So he is out doing something, again, traversing the field, farming the field, doing something in that field, but he is not looking, per se, for treasure. He's not looking for something valuable in that field. Um, He just happens to find it. The second individual, the merchant, is on the hunt. He is looking. The the parable Jesus says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. So we have another contrast between these two individuals. One is a regular Joe. The other one's extremely wealthy. One stumbles upon treasure in a field. The other one is searching for something that has great value. Um, and and uh, and so that that is another contrast that that we find in the parable. And and then I would say finally, there's actually a similarity. And here's the similarity. The similarity is. When the first individual found the treasure, and the second individual found the pearl that was extremely valuable, they both went and liquidated their assets to purchase the item. That's the similarity. Um, and, uh, and that actually is, uh, is going to be, in the end, kind of where we zero in. So let's let's think about the parable now. So you understand in general the idea behind the parables, uh, some of the differences, some of the similarities. Let's talk about some of the kingdom truths. And here's one of the things I would just tell you: when you look at pearl, when, pearls, when you look at parables like these two, two very short parables, you think to yourself, what? is possibly here of value. And when you start looking at it, the possibilities are nearly endless. The kingdom truths contained in these two parables are um, are robust. Let's just put it that way. And I'm just going to try to highlight three of them for you. Um, and, and so let's, let's go this way. Uh, this treasure that Jesus talks about um, involves regular people. Um, one of the things that Jesus is telling us in the passage is that the gospel, uh, first, is not in plain sight. The, the way that the parables even veil that truth, Jesus is telling us that often the treasure, the gospel, the kingdom of God, the things of God are not in plain sight. They're hidden from us. Um, exactly the way uh, the, the treasure was hidden in a field, exactly the way the, the pearl was uh, just uh, discovered sort of in a, in a random sense, the kingdom of God for us is often found in places we don't expect it. And that's one of the things about the passage uh, that, uh, that Jesus is telling us. If you look at the parable, the man stumbles upon the treasure in a field. Think about that. Think about just, you know, if, if that's the storyline, okay? So this man is out in the field. He stumbles upon this treasure in the field. And then the passage tells us he went away and he liquidated all of his assets and he bought the field. So in, in that community, whatever community this individual would have been living in, right? I mean, 
let's just let's just bring it right here to to, to Lake Oconee. Um, you know, there are probably there's some people in here that know about land and and land in the area and that sort of thing. And and what if you heard that somebody in church, you know, sold everything, liquidated their home, all of their assets to buy, I don't know, the chicken wing place that just went up. Right? Would that be a head scratcher? I am pretty sure most of you would be scratching your head. What in the world was old Joe doing? Why, why in the world did he liquidate everything in order to buy that? And, and no doubt, right, in the parable, think about it. Joe has gone and liquidated everything, and the townspeople are going, to buy that field? Why in the world would he liquidate everything to buy that field? They, they wouldn't have understood because they don't know what Joe knows about that field. Are you with me? Because it's hidden from their sight. Because the, the passage tells us that Joe was in the field. He found the treasure, and then he covered it up, and then he went and bought the field. Now, some of you are like, now hold on a second. That doesn't sound quite fair. And I... Apparently, okay, I'm not an expert in Jewish law, nor am I an expert in um, in Roman law, but apparently both of those were at play during this period. And the Jewish law was finders keepers. You all know that one, losers weepers, okay? So the, the general rule was if you found it, it was yours. Um, and, and, in the, and in this passage, um, some people say, well, but the Roman, the Roman rule was somewhat unclear, and so the, end of, the man didn't want to get caught somehow in jeopardy. And so what he did was he did it the right way, and he went and he liquidated everything and he bought the field. And you'd say, yeah, but what about the owner of the field? Well, here's the thing. The owner of the field probably wouldn't have known that that treasure was there. Had the owner of the field known that that treasure was there because it was theirs, would they have sold the field? No. Um, and so, and here's how another head scratcher probably for you is who finds buried treasure? I mean, that's like a thing, you know, uh, that's, that's a history television or something. But in this day and age, they didn't have banks. So if you had, if you had possessions and a marauding army was coming through, what would you do? Well, you wouldn't, you, you would take it out. And you would bury it in a, in a field somewhere. You would hide it somewhere. Have you all ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay. The Dead Sea Scrolls were probably, had probably been hidden away so that, so that they wouldn't be destroyed. So they were put in jars and they were hidden in caves. And oh, just by the way, they got left there for about 1500 years. Um, so that's how we end up with the, uh, that's how we end up with the, with that part of the parable anyways. That's a little bit of a sidetrack. But but the man goes and he he has sold everything for this treasure that's in the field because it's hidden because it isn't in plain sight and the gospel often for us is hidden and it's hidden in people and, and here's what I mean by that God deposits the gospel in ordinary regular everyday folks and we don't think about the gospel that way we don't think about people that way. Because we do, if you'll recall, what Samuel did quite often. And that is we overlook people. We overlook people that God doesn't overlook. 
And, and you'll recall when Samuel is going to call David, okay, and he doesn't know it's David, so he goes and Jesse is parading all of his sons. Do you remember this passage? And, and he's there and he's parading all of his boys and, and, and Samuel has seen them and he, oh, you know, he's a strapping young guy. He, that's the one right there. Nope, not him. What about the next one? Nope, not him. And he gets all the way to the end and he says, is that it? And Jesse says, well, I got, I got David, but he's just, he's a little guy and he's, he's tending the sheep. He's out watching the sheep. And, and remember, Samuel says, well, bring him in. And he brings him in and he's a ruddy little kid. And God says, he's the one. Look, God has made, you know, he's made a living, if you will, of taking regular, ordinary people and depositing his gospel, his grace, his kingdom in their lives. That's one of the things that we learn. And, and, as, and it makes sense as you go back through Scripture and you look, right? And you think about Abraham, and here he is, right? A, a normal, regular guy, but he, he had no interest in the things of God. He's a polytheist worshiping down in Ur. He worshiped all the gods. And God comes to him and shows himself to him and says, you're going to be my guy. And you think, well, there must have been something amazing about Abraham. He must have had an amazing faith. He must have just, and he did, he trusted God and he, and he moved out and he moved his family and then he promptly messed up multiple times. A regular Joe. And then you follow that line, right? And you look at Isaac and you look at Jacob and then you, and then you move into Exodus and you see Moses, a stuttering, kind of a blabbering regular Joe, and he confesses to God right out of the gate. <laughs> I'm not your guy. I can't even communicate. And God says, you're my guy. And then you move into Joshua, fearful. All of Joshua chapter 1 is a reminder to Joshua, look, yes, Moses is dead, but you're my guy. And Joshua apparently had a heart full of fear because he spends an entire first chapter telling him, don't fear, I will be with you. And then we read about Rahab, and then we read about David, and then we get to the New Testament. And who does, who does Jesus select to be his disciples? Does he, does he go out and, and find the big financiers? Does he, does he go to, the, uh, to academia and, and get the scholars and, and the really intelligent, wise men, the sages of the age? Does he call them to himself? No. He goes and he gets fishermen and tax collectors and regular jazz. God deposits his gospel regularly in people like that, in people like us, like you. The flip is, he also deposits it in people of means. The second parable, the, the merchant. Listen, this is tremendous news because there are places, there are points in the gospel, right? This is a little bit of a twist for Jesus because in other places he says, listen, you know, he has an encounter with the rich young ruler. Do you remember this? And the rich young ruler comes and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, well, you know, obey your father and mother and blah, blah, blah. And he lists off all these commandments. And the rich young ruler says, I've done all of that. And he says, good, now go sell everything you have and come follow me. 
And the rich young ruler, it says, went away sad because he had much wealth, because his heart was tangled up. And, and, and the point coming out of that is the disciples are like, well, who can enter the kingdom of God? If it's, if it's hard for a rich man to get through, if it's easier for the camel to go through a, the eye of a needle, then and what does Jesus say? Jesus looks at him and he says, with God, all things are possible. It is possible. It's, it's very possible. And the parable tells us God often deposits the gospel in regular Joes, but he also deposits it in people of means. He does. He changes our hearts. He does amazing things, miraculous things, powerful things. Listen to Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.28. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world and there he's again addressing that idea of look the things that you and i look at the things that you and i judge people by are not the things that jesus not the things that god the father thinks about in second corinthians chapter 4 verse 7 paul says but we have this treasure the gospel in jars of clay and then he says this to show that the all-surpassing power of God is in him and not us. You see, when God deposits his gospel in regular people like you and I, it's his power at work. It's a reflection of his goodness, his glory. You and I look at externals. We look at people differently than God does. That's one of the things that we learned here in this parable. Here's the second thing, is that this idea of uh, the treasure involves a, a simplistic message. John MacArthur, one of my favorite preachers, he preaches out in Sun Valley, California. MacArthur is, I don't know, probably in his mid-70s now, but this is the guy that I cut my teeth on. In fact, this week when I started thinking about these two parables, I remember the first book of any theological nature that I ever read was in 1991, and it was the title of it was The Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur. And um, I would, would say if, if you want to be challenged a little bit, that's, it would be a great read, even today. Um, but I remember reading that book, but I, I, MacArthur tells a story, he told a story at some point in, in his time about being called to the home of an elite athlete in Los Angeles. So I guess it was probably some, my guess is it was probably somebody with the Los Angeles Lakers. That's what I would think. Um, and he talks about being invited to this athlete's home. And he said when he got there, there were several other prominent athletes in the home. And they had called him and asked him to come because they wanted him to share the gospel because they wanted this guy to hear it. He had some crisis going on. And MacArthur tells the story. He says, I went in, and he, he said, I felt a little bit out of my league, so to speak. Here are these athletes. These, uh, they're successful. There were some other businessmen and leaders in the community that were there. And he said, one of them opened and said, we just want you to share the gospel. And MacArthur says, I'm looking around the room, and I start Sharing the gospel. Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin. He came in. He 
He lived life. He died on a cross. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven. Paul tells us if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is God and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I mean, he, he says, I just, he said, and all I could hear was blah, 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 blah. Like, what am I doing? Like, here I am. I'm with all of these prominent people. They've asked me to share the gospel. I'm sharing the gospel. And it sounds like, it sounds like child's play. Like, really? Like, this is the message? I mean, think about it. Think about the simplicity of the message of the gospel. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that Jesus is God, um, the Son of God, and that he was raised from the dead and you will be saved. That's the message that the Bible tells us changes lives. That's pretty remarkable. It's remarkable in its simplicity. Go look at the other. We talked about the other major world religions last week. Go, go look at the list of the do's and the don'ts and the musts and the mustn'ts. The gospel is believe in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Put your faith and hope in him and you will be saved. It's so simple. We usually mess it up. It's so simple that Paul says it's a stumbling block to us, to Jew and to Gentile alike. If you've got your Bibles, if you turn to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. In verse 10, Peter is talking about the salvation. He says, concerning this salvation, all right, the gospel that I just gave you. And then he says several things, and then he gets to the end, and he says, even the very end of verse 12, even angels long to look into these things. Peter's saying, even the angels in heaven, think about this, long to look into the things of the gospel. It's how amazing it is. We, we look at it. We talk about it. We may share it. We may not even share it because we're embarrassed by it. Because it's so simple. Why else would we not share it? We are. There's something about that message that is hard for us to say to somebody. Elsewise, we would do it with ease. But there's something about the message that nearly embarrasses us because it is so simple. It's an ordinary message. And it comes from an ordinary Savior. That's the third point. Listen, the gospel, here's the thing. Jesus comes to the world. You and I think to ourselves, it must have been a no-brainer. But everybody who saw him and encountered him, 
not, well, let's put it this way. Not everyone who saw him and encountered him was immediately drawn and attracted to him. It just didn't work that way. And the responses were, there had to be a response if you heard him. Lots of people ran away from him. Lots of people accused him of being um, a heretic. They wanted to kill him because he said he was equal with God. And then there were some people who followed him. Those are the three basic responses to who Jesus is. But the Bible tells us there was nothing in him to make him attractive to us. He is an ordinary Savior in a sense. I mean, think about it. Jesus went around. He healed people. He did amazing miracles. They sat on the, they sat on the edge of the sea, thousands upon thousands of them. He took fish and bread. He multiplied it and fed all of them and then had 12 basketfuls left over. He did, he did miracles like that. And people regularly walked away from him. And in the end, they crucified him. Because he was ordinary. Because he himself was not, um, he was not glamorous. He was not a, he was not attractive. He was not necessarily overly winsome, apparently. I had an older, it was very early in my pastoral ministry, and uh, I was in a, a smaller, kind of a first Presbyterian church in Mississippi, Louisville, we say Louisville, they say Louisville, Mississippi, south of Starkville, about uh, 30 miles, and, um, and I remember I had been preaching for several months, I don't know, and uh, I had an opportunity, there was a uh, an older pastor who was in the congregation pretty regularly. And I'll never forget asking, telling, I was, I was struggling because, you know, I took everything personally. I would get in the pulpit and I would look out at the congregation. It was one of those congregations. I, I kind of know y'all. I, I, I know when you're here and when you're not generally <laughs> because I know where you sit. Okay. And so I kind of know that, but in that congregation, I really knew. And there would be Sundays where there would be people that were regularly there and they weren't there. And, and then I'd find out, like, they just didn't come to church that Sunday. Like, they weren't out of town or they weren't at the beach or they weren't, you know, they just didn't come and it hurt my feelings. And so I said something to him one time. I said, you know, I was asking about my sermons and you know what he told me? He said, look, there were people that walked away from Jesus' message too. Not that you're Jesus, Sam. <laughs> but even Jesus had a hard time attracting people because he had a simplistic message because he was an ordinary savior you see the ordinariness one author talks a lot about the ordinary nature of this gospel you and i think oh it is you know it's the bee's knees not so much to the world and here's here's the final thing that i think you can we can pull away from this, and it's this. That the gospel, that the gospel, the treasure involves a radically reoriented life. That's the thing I think we can all sink our teeth into as we think about the parable. It is the thing that is a, 
that kind of startles us about the parables. And that is both of these individuals liquidated all of their assets. Think about that. It doesn't mean that you have to liquidate all of your assets. That's not what the parable is telling you. But here's what the parable is telling us. It's telling us that when we truly encounter the gospel, when we truly encounter the kingdom of God, it will radically reorient our lives. The key word there is radically. It's not a self-help tool. Jesus isn't, the gospel is not just an additional, hey, you need a little you know, boost. You need a little pick-me-up. The gospel comes along and it radically reorients our lives. It reorients us to our neighbor. It reorients us to God. It reorients us to everything in life. It reorients us to sex, to finances, to personal relationships. The gospel is the thing that reorients all of life. And it doesn't just do it by a list of of do's and don'ts. It does it by radically altering our hearts, who we are and what we think about the world in which we live. It doesn't do it all at once, but it is a radical reorienting of who we are. Think about, I mean, think about some of the things that Jesus says elsewhere, right? Where he teaches us about how we're to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. Just take that. How do you get to that point? How, how can your life be so radically reoriented that you learn to pray for your enemies and for those who persecute you? That, that's the kind of reorienting that the gospel does. It doesn't just come along and, and some, you know, it's not just a, 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 again, another tool to help you be a better you. It comes along and it says, you have to be a completely different you, which is why some of the language that Jesus uses, you must be born again. He doesn't, see, he doesn't say you must be kind of sort of changed a little bit. He says there has to be a completely new you. Something totally radical must happen in your life. And the way that that happens is it begins by, um, it begins by us seeing and knowing who we are as fallen people. So that we identify with David. Surely I was sinful, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's the confession we begin with. Listen, this body, okay, if you're visiting with us, this may be news to you, but every person who is a member of LOPC had to confess how bad they were before they joined. There are only, there are only three organizations where that's possible. Hell's Angels, <laughs> the mob, and the church. I mean, think about it. What other club do you have to put down? I'm a sinner desperately in need of something outside of myself in order to be declared good. What other organization do you put that on your resume? You don't. But when you are radically reoriented by the gospel, that is the first thing out of the gate. That begins your radical reorientation. 
I am not who I thought I was. I am not the most, I am not the most amazing thing since sliced bread. In fact, I am so desperately sinful that God had to send His Son into the world to die on a cross in order to save me. But then the gospel reorients you in another direction, right? Because when you realize that and you suddenly had that slump in your, in your stomach and you realize, geez, I'm a really bad person. The gospel comes along and it says, he loves you so much that he sent a son in the world to die for you. And then it tells you, oh, by the way, God loves you. He, the creator of the universe, has set his attention and his affection on you. And he has declared you righteous in his sight. I don't know about you, but that is that amazing mercy and grace that I need to hear, not just when I become a believer, but every single day of my life. Without that news, every day I perish. Without that news every day, my bones waste away because I still sin. Romans 7. The things I want to do, those I don't do. The things I don't want to do, those I keep on doing. Oh, who will rescue me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? What does Paul say? Thanks be to God for the grace that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Wow. That is that good news. That's the radical reorienting of the gospel. Marion read Philippians 3 for you again. He, he sent me a text this week and he said, Hey, you know, you've got Philippians 3 down as the passage. You changed last week's passage to Philippians 3. Do you want me to read it again or do you want me to change it? And I'll just tell you, it is my favorite passage in the entire Bible and it completely sums up these two parables. The Apostle Paul says, I took all of that stuff that I had and I did what? I counted it as rubbish in order to have Jesus. In order to have a righteousness not my own that comes from the law, I gave up all of that stuff. And both of these parables, the main point in them is the gospel radically reorients your life so that none of that stuff matters. And when I say that, please don't hear like, Nothing in life matters. Florida beating Miami last night matters, okay? The SEC won. We're on a good, we're we're already, we're 100%, you know, 1,000% in the SEC. Just kidding. All right. But, But think about it. All of those things matter, but they pale in comparison to the gospel. They pale in comparison to what Jesus has brought into our lives. And what that what he has brought into our lives by virtue of being the pearl of great price and the treasure is he's brought a peace that passes all understanding. He's brought a relationship with God the Father that can never, ever, ever, ever be severed. You are secure. If you're trusting in Christ, you are secure and the righteousness of God. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for these parables. Father, so so much here for us. Father, I pray that you'll give us uh, you'll give us eyes and ears as, even as Jesus 
prayed. Father, give us ears to hear this news and remind us of all that you've done for us in Christ. Let us hear that ordinary message from an ordinary Savior so that our lives will be radically changed for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.